Ben Curtis teaches political science at Seattle University, and he travels extensively in Europe. One of his passions is visiting the homes and museums associated with the great composers, and he's here to share some of his favorites. Ben, thanks for joining us. My pleasure to be here, Rick. Ben, if you were advising a friend or somebody going to Europe to splice in some of the best uh, musical sites in Europe, what are the must-see attractions? Well, I would say go to the musical capitals. You've got to go to Vienna, which has an absolutely unparalleled, not only musical history, but musical performance today. You've got to go to London. You've got to go to Munich. You've got to go to Berlin. And then, of course, you can hit some other world-famous things like La Scala Opera in Milan. It's kind of, I always think of it when I go to Europe and hit these places, it's kind of my pilgrimage. I'm going to the great shrines. I'd be ashamed to be in Milan and not go to La Scala. Absolutely. Or to Vienna and not go to the opera house. And I've found in a lot of these countries, the government actually sort of subsidizes the arts for young people, uh, specifically, uh, who are unable to afford it. And any traveler who just doesn't have the money to spend 150 bucks for an opera ticket, you can do standby tickets, you can find Mm -hmm. ways. Have you found that? Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing that I also always tell people is, even if you're not that excited by classical music, you've heard of Mozart, of course. You've heard of Verdi. You've probably heard of Wagner. You've heard of Bach. And if you're not normally a classical music crazy person like myself, you can still go and see even a portion of a fantastic concert for very little money there because you can get a cheap ticket and the experience, even to sit there for an hour until intermission, is absolutely worth it. Yeah, you know, to be honest, I'm not good a lot of times for a whole opera. I have a tough time with it, but I want to, you know, get a sample of that. And even standing room, there's Mm -hmm. usually standing room for $5. Uh, It's just quite an experience. And you also get that bonus of seeing all the uh, cultural elite of the city dressed up in there. It's not a tourist experience. It's the local culture. Exactly, and it's central to the culture. I mean, these great artists help define these European cultures that many a Czech, say, or many a Norwegian can't conceive of their national culture without thinking about Smetana in Prague now or that, Rieg That's in a very Norway. interesting point, this whole mix of patriotism and music. I mean, for a lot of countries, a lot of nations, you have this national resurgence movement, don't you, in the Romantic Age, the mm-hmm. uh, 1800s. And you've got all these countries, whether it's Bulgaria or Norway or whatever, that are kept down by being stuck in bigger multinational old-school empires, right? Yeah, and what's really fascinating is these composers come along, and you might think of a composer as some sort of uh, highly cultivated gentleman sitting at a piano in ruffles and playing music. But in fact, many of these composers in the 19th century, people like Smetana, like Verdi, like Wagner, they are politicians as well. They're leaders. They are leaders. And they want... Subversive leaders. Subversive leaders, indeed. And they stir things up, they're rabble-rousers, and they do it partially through their music, that their music... I mean, if you've ever heard, say, um, the great chorus from Nabucco in Verdi's opera Nabucco, which swept Italian towns when it came out, you get enthusiastic. Now, what, you understand what decade why. would this be when it came That's out especially the 1860s is it, the great So Italy decade. was united in 1870 or so. Mm-hmm. Most of the powers who controlled the different states of Italy didn't want to see a united Italy, right? Yeah, exactly. You couldn't even wave the Italian flag without getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. But you could go to the opera house. And when the Verdi song came on, that was like an anthem for Italy. Exactly. What would happen? Patriotism was up there on stage, and you would get, yes, the the cheers. People would stand on their seats and sing along. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was how you waved the flag. Exactly. And you, you read these composers' letters, and they talk about, yes, I heard crowds whistling and singing my songs in the streets. Tell me a little more about how the other sort of nationalistic composers fed that fire. Yeah. Well, I love Prague, and I spend a lot of time in Prague, and Prague is also one of the great musical cities of Europe. 
And a lot of Americans have heard of Dvorak, who's a great composer as well, but the man who's even more important to Dvorak in terms of Czech identity is Smetana, who is most famous for The Bartered Bride, which that's one of the great things that he did. He put the Czech peasants up on stage because the peasants, they weren't treated with respect most of the time, right? They're the most oppressed population in any European country. But composers and other artists like Smetana, they said, look, here is the pure, untainted Czechness. Here is what we should be in terms of our own national culture and its very roots. And so they put them up on the opera stage. And that was crazy because here's this high art form, which you have peasants dancing around. But composers like Smetana said, we're going to show that the peasant culture is the root of our culture and we're going to put it into art. So in the 19th century, high musical art was not limited and appreciated only by the high echelons of the culture? Yeah. I mean, I put it this way. Opera was the TV of its day in that, sure, there was the fancy barons and duchesses who would go there, but it was the entertainment that everyone went to. I mean, the uh, theater, that's where everyone went. And my it, Czech friends, even today, when you hear Smetana, they just say, please stop, let's just remember the Czech people. Exactly. It's and hard it, for Americans to quite relate to that. It is. Well, something I want for everybody is to listen to Smetana's Vltava, which is his tone poem about the Vltava River that runs through Prague, to listen to that while sitting there and staring across the Voltava at Prague Castle because all of those sites are right there in the music. And that is probably the quintessential stir your Czech soul piece. Exactly. Is that the one that goes... Yep, and he paints the whole course of the river from where it starts until where it ends in the music. A trick is to choose the right venue. It's true. The fun sometimes is poking your head into the venue and see where they're playing because the church itself, they're usually in these great churches and they're so opulent itself that it's just worth spending an hour in the church to look at all the decoration. You know, to, to listen to Baroque music in a Baroque venue, there's something about that. It's just right. Tell me about Wagner. Wagner, he's this great controversial character. I mean... Because he's super romantic. Right? He's super romantic. He, he epitomizes the 19th century in so many ways. And I'm not going to lie to you. He was a jerk. Wagner was an anti-Semite. Wagner was this egomaniacal, self-interested jerk. And he, however, was committed to putting German art into classical music because he thought, well, there was Bach, right? But then after Bach, what happened? Well, French and Italian style came over. Wasn't this a time when Germany was sort of, I mean, Germany was just uniting. And there was a question, is Germany really a viable and legitimate nation and people like Wagner stirred up all sorts of proto-German mythological superheroes, mm-hmm. sort of the, the Paul Bunyans of that culture, you know? Exactly. Smetana wanted to, to show how valuable the peasant culture was. Wagner wanted to show how valuable German culture was in regard to French and Italian. Because, Didn't, of course, French and Italian dominated, say, opera and classical music. Wasn't he a friend of King Ludwig II? He was. Mad King Ludwig. Mad I King mean, Ludwig, Didn't yeah. he, some of, some of the rooms at uh, mm-hmm. are inspired by Wagnerian opera themes? Absolutely, yeah. Mad King Ludwig was actually a groupie of Wagner's. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Ben Curtis, and we're two uh, Europhiles who love music, and we're talking about how you can splice a little music into your European sightseeing. Ben, when you are in Vienna... To me, it is such a remarkable thing to think about how the Habsburgs not only loved music, they patronized music. For hundreds of years, too. Yeah, I think that it's one of the great absurd moments in human history that especially for 50 years from, say, 1770 to 1820, a little after 1820, you have one of the greatest collections of creative humans in all of existence that happen in Vienna. Huh, that's interesting. That 50-year period, sort of a golden age of uh, high culture in Vienna. Mm -hmm. And at that time, Vienna rivaled 
Paris or Madrid as the cultural capital of Europe, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In fact, in music, nowhere can quite compare. Vienna was the leading light of music, especially during this time. I mean, who are some people that were uh, getting kicked out of their apartments because they were practicing too late (laughs) during this period? Well, the the kind of grand old man, of course, was Papa Haydn, Joseph Haydn, who actually for many years lived out in the countryside. He was employed by a Hungarian nobleman, but he also, of course, worked in Vienna and even for a very brief little time uh, tutored Mozart. And so Mozart is now the, the favorite son in many ways of Vienna, though, of course, he was not nearly as popular, especially among the Viennese aristocracy during his day. But then following Mozart, you get my favorite, I really think, the greatest composer who ever lived, and that's Beethoven. Mm -hmm. And though Beethoven was from Bonn up in Germany, he made Vienna his city. So it was natural for composers from Germany or Austria to sort of think, you know, life goes better for a musician and a composer in Vienna. Here I get the respect, here I get the money, here I get the work, here I get great symphonies and an audience that respects what I'm doing. It was a magnet. So people came from Germany. These guys could have jammed together. Yeah, indeed they did. Hey, it's Tuesday. Let's go over to Haydn's house. You know, this is the thing that I, I always fantasize about is that say, yeah, it's Tuesday night. Um, Beethoven might be playing with his quintet and his quintet members would be an archduke. So one of the, one of the leading Habsburg noblemen and two other great professional musicians, and then another kind of intelligent and gifted amateur. And they'd gather an audience of friends. And here you have one of the greatest geniuses of all time, just making an average Tuesday night of music. Ben, along with Vienna, you mentioned London, Munich, and Berlin as great capitals of music. A little surprising to me. Take us to one of those cities and tell me why that should be on your list if you're a music lover in Europe. Well, I used to live in London, and I'll tell you, I was there as a poor graduate student, but it was one of the greatest experiences of my life because every night in London, almost like Vienna back in 1800, there's a fabulous concert to be heard. And a lot of the times it's really affordable. You know, England used to be known pejoratively as the land without music, but now they have four fantastic full symphony orchestras. There's more chamber music there. There's more singers there. Every night of the week, there's something great to be seen. And I think... Sure, you go to London for the great plays and the great theater, but if you don't hit some classical music in London, you're really missing out on some of the great scene there. What's your favorite venue in London for classical music? Well, I'm I'm a little bit of a connoisseur on these things. I love the Wigmore Hall, which is one of the most perfect chamber music halls anywhere in the world. And you go there, you don't hear a symphony orchestra, you hear one of the greatest leader singers, so the German leader singers, and it's intimate. And these singers create a story with every song. And here you're sitting in this place of 200 people, maybe. And at the end of, say, Schubert's uh, The Beautiful Maid, there's a story. You've all been through this catharsis. And at the end of it, nobody breathes. When you get a great singer like Fischodischka or something like that, nobody breathes because you've been in this experience together in this intimate hall for an hour and a half. And then it's over and you go back to the real world. Whoa. Wigmore Hall. Wigmore Hall in London. I'm going to check it out. Ben Curtis, thanks for uh, helping us splice a little bit of music appreciation into our European travels. Thanks, Rick. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 130 cities across the country. Help yourself to free podcasts of past shows and Rick's audio tours of Europe's greatest sites in the radio section of our website. For the latest on Rick's radio and TV work, his guidebooks and his European tours with small groups, visit ricksteves.com.